Good morning, Grace Point. I am so glad that you're here with us today. Today, uh, we are beginning a new series called What is Progressive Christianity? At Grace Point, the, what we call ourselves is a progressive Christian church. And sometimes we need to drill down a bit on what that actually means. What does it mean to be progressive? What does it mean to be Christian? Um, it's, important, it's an important series because it really speaks to who we are and what we hope to do and be in the world as a community. This past Wednesday morning, uh, I, had f- I finished up prep for this sermon. And I turned on the news to watch Congress certify the election victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And what is usually, I'll be honest with you, I had never watched that part of the process before. I don't know if any of you had, but I, I had never seen that, never watched it. And this process that's usually more of a formality was fraught with tension. And then an insurrection, a, a coup attempt instigated by the President of the United States and his enablers and fueled by white supremacy and white fragility happened on live television. As I watched, I was both shocked and also not surprised at all. It was scary um, as we sat on the couch and I'm sitting with our 11 year old and watching this happen right in front of us. Um, While we were just, we thought we were just gonna watch a process and what we saw was a coup attempt on national television, international television. I was shocked and I was not surprised. It was scary and it was painful to see. It was also disgusting to see the, 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 the symbols of the Christian faith in so many ways, crosses. Um, not a symbol that a lot of people maybe talk about, but people were draped in flags that had crosses on them, Christ, what are known as Christian flags. People were wearing and holding banners and signs. All sorts of Jesus paraphernalia was everywhere to be seen. And it was being used by People during a a, a coup attempt, a terror, essentially a a moment of trying to create terror, a terror attack, as if their ideology, if that ideology that would lead to violence, as if that ideology were somehow compatible with the Christian tradition. So Thursday morning, I got up and I started working on this sermon again. Today, I want to begin to explore those two words, progressive and Christian. And I want to do that by reversing the order. Today, I'm going to talk about what what we, well, let me say, not we, what I mean by Christian, at least right now. <laughs> if we had to talk 10 years ago, it would have been different. If we talked 10 years from now, it may be different. But right now, for me, this is what it, I think about when I think of the word Christian. And then next week, we're going to talk about what we maybe mean by progressive. And then we can go, we're going to go in all sorts of really interesting places. Um, but I think we need to begin with this. Words have content, and that content means something. I think this past Wednesday revealed that in a major way. People heard words, and then they went and did something with those words. So words have content, and it's important for us to be able to articulate what that content is for us. You know, I'll tell you, as a pastor, um, for the last you know, two decades almost, um, there were times when I was going through my own unraveling process that I would get up in front of a group of people, and I would talk about something, and I would be talking about it through a lens of prog- more progressive a perspective, and um, but I would be using words that they understood differently. And I, it, the first part of that, I never took time to clear that up. And of course, later that brought in lots of lots of pain and disappointment. People felt people. Some people felt a sense of betrayal. You were saying this, but I thought you meant this, and you never told me. So I think words really matter, and they mean something. And when we hear words, we have sort of a a bunch of connections and associations that we tend to give that word. 
the usual association for many people when they hear the word Christian, I mean, maybe, <laughs> I think for some people they groan and like, what's wrong with these people? I think for people who maybe have been Christian, one of the associations is that whatever, what, what is a Christian? Well, it's whatever I am. It's whatever my denomination is. It's whatever my particular church is. And anyone or group or theology or doctrine or practice that deviates from what I am is somehow either less Christian or heretical or, or just there's no room for it. And this comes up specifically in context where people disagree about the way somebody else practices their faith. So how many of you, maybe this week, have been told, or at some point in the last, your lifetime, you've been told, you're not a real Christian? Anybody ever, I mean, this week on the internet? Yep, some of us, yep, some of us, I see all of your hands. Some of us had that experience. All right, and I do it too. So when I see a hateful street preacher holding signs um, that are full of not, not love and compassion and generosity, but full of hate, and exclusion, and even violence in some of these signs. Or when I see Westboro Baptist Church spewing their hate, or I see a guy draped in a Trump flag bowing before a cross during a coup attempt, my impulse is to say that these aren't actually Christians, that whatever we are is Christian and whatever they are is somehow not Christian. The problem is, is that no matter how badly we might want to, we actually don't get to define what other people, how other people identify religiously. One of the things that makes someone a Christian is that they identify as a Christian. Somebody bubbles in that bubble on what, like, yes, that means they're Christian because they identify as Christian. As of 2020, um, that, that year, uh, it's almost going to become the new, like the Voldemort of years, the year of which we do not speak. Um, 2.6 billion people in the world identify as Christian. Some estimates are that there are more than 30,000 Christian denominations. So let that soak in. Right? 2.6 billion people on this planet identify as some, some version, some kind of Christian. There are more than 30,000 denominations, more than 1,200 right here in the U.S. The reality is we can't say anything about Christianity as sort of a monolithic institution or system of belief. When I was in grad school, I had a professor whose expertise was in the area of Asian religions. And he told us every year at the end of his undergrad intro to Buddhism, uh, he would tell his students something like this. This semester, I've taught you an introduction to Buddhism. I've given you the central concepts, beliefs, practices of the tradition. Now, forget everything you've learned because nobody practices it that way. And he went on to say, there's no such thing as Buddhism. There are only Buddhisms. And I would say that about Christianity. There, about the Christian tradition, there is no such thing as Christianity. There are only Christianities. There are only the various ways these sorts of traditions play out, these sorts of beliefs and practices play out in the lives of real people in the world. They're sort of like, that, like what we can say academically, but then there's all this lived experience and practice that makes it hard to really pigeonhole. I mean, you, what you can do is you can begin, I think, to make some, some painting in broad strokes. You can be able to say some things. But when it comes down to how people actually live and practice, it really is um, every religious tr tradition is really, really diverse. So when we say at Grace Point that we are a progressive Christian church, which version of Christianity are we talking about? In reality, it's probably as many versions as there are people, right? There's, there are as many like interesting little um, innovations and, and shifts in belief, probably. We, we, I bet we all don't, if we just lined everything up, we all probably don't see everything the same way. But if we wanted to sort of paint in some broad strokes, um, could, we, could we maybe try to understand what kind of Christian we're trying to be? And I think it's also important to say, maybe what kind of Christian Christianity we're not. Um, we, we, when I say Christian, I don't mean Christian nationalism. 
um, which is, is on the rise in our country. And it's, it was evident on our TVs this week, and it's evident in all sorts of different ways and places. The idea of Christian nationalism would actually be completely baffling to the earliest Christians. There was an early Christian. He lived um, from the mid-2nd century to the mid-3rd century from Africa. His name was Tertullian. Listen, listen to these words from him. Shall we carry a flag? It is a rival to Christ. So, so in this earliest layer, the idea of, of, of Christian belief, Christian practice, Christian tradition being intertwined with empire, uh, being intertwined with nationalism, uh, really would have been foreign to them. The earliest Christian community committed themselves to, a, to practicing and implementing a different order, a kingdom, a kingdom, as we talked about last week. And for them, nationalism would have been selling out the story of Jesus. It would have been selling out the gospel. It would have been heresy. Now, this changed when the Roman Emperor Constantine took over the church in the, later three, in the mid to late 300s. Um, and the reality is today, Christian nationalism is prevalent, and it is a baptized. Uh, it, it's a baptism of violence and hate. It makes fear a virtue, and the chief sacrament is al- almost always the Second Amendment. And at Grace Point, we are not a nationalist church. Um, I'm grateful for the freedoms we have. I'm grateful for the freedoms we have to have these conversations. I'm grateful for that. But at the end of the day, we're not a nationalist uh, form of Christian. When we say Christian, we also don't mean that we believe that everything that needed to be said or could be said about the Christian faith was said by the 300s or the 1500s, as if the church creeds and the Reformation put a bow on everything. Uh, way back when they, that way back then they got it all right. We're just supposed to repeat and restate their formulations and not try to mess anything up too bad. Next week, as we talk about what it means to be progressive, we're going to come back to this specifically. Um, this idea that many of us many of us grew up with that that the Christian tradition was finished in the 300s or in the 1500s or in the 1950s or whatever that looks like. I actually think it's much more interesting and exciting than that. And, and when we say Christian, we don't mean that we're hostile toward other religious traditions. We actually celebrate the gifts and goodness that other religious traditions bring into the world. And we're also going to talk about that in a few more weeks. When I say that I'm Christian, I mean a couple of things. First, I mean that I'm compelled and inspired by the story of Jesus. I think Jesus embodies the divine, and I think Jesus calls us to join him in that work of embodying the divine. I trust in Jesus. I trust that his way of life marked by compassion and love, not only for his neighbor, not, but also for his enemy. I trust that that is the way, the way to be truly and fully human is the way of love. The Jesus story isn't the only story that inspires and creates meaning for people, but it is the story that's home for me. It's the story that I grew up with. Um, I'm one of those, you know, my grandfather was a, was a preacher and I'm one of those kids who started going to church nine months before I came into the world. So it's home for me. When I was a kid, um, before, before I was 11, so I mean, this would have been when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, my great-grandma would tell me stories, stories of her late husband and other relatives that I would never meet because they passed on years before I came into the world. And not only did through her stories, like at her table, day after day after day, she was our next-door neighbor, so day after day after day, she would be telling me these stories. And not only did she make the past present for me during those stories. She also created a sense of meaning and connection with family members, of who they were, what they did, what their lives were. I just, I would never know that other than her stories. Her stories invited me into knowing um, my family in a, a way that I wouldn't have without them. And I think in the same way, you know, it, it gave me a kind of familial rootedness is the way I would put it. It connected me to people. 
And in the same way, I think engaging the Jesus stories provides us with a story to gather around, with a story to draw meaning from, to interpret from, uh, and it gives us a sense of that same familial rootedness, not only with people in our community today, but people throughout Christian history. And I think we should mention, in a more conservative paradigm for the Christian faith, the central importance of Jesus, and this is what I grew up with and what probably many of us grew up with, the central importance of Jesus is that he is born to die on the cross. And he's not only born to die on the cross, he is born to die on the cross in the place of human beings to obtain forgiveness from God for human sin and to open the way of salvation for us. In in this sense, Jesus really is sort of a a means to an end. He's sort of a mechanism. Um, Jesus is the thing that gets God off our backs. Jesus is the thing that appeases God's wrath. God either wants to kill humans or kill the innocent Christ, and he chooses, he, always he, chooses to kill the innocent Christ to somehow make a way for us to be acceptable and worthy and loved. This is reflected in the creeds of the church that focus on the birth of Jesus, which was, you know, the part of the importance of the virgin birth was this idea that Jesus came to the world sinless so he could die on the cross. And of course, they, the creeds also focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus as being um, how sin is paid for. The, those bookends, the beginning and end of life, really are the point. Um, and, and if we ever were, I would say this, if, if we ever were, uh, in my upbringing, to talk about other things. If we were to talk about the signs and wonders Jesus performs in the Gospels, for example, it, it was never at some sort of layer asking, what, what, might, what, what might these stories be claiming about the world, about what it means to, to engage the world? It was always just about, well, Jesus could walk on water, so he's divine. Jesus fed 5,000, so he's divine. He raised the dead, so he's divine. He does all this stuff. He healed the blind and, and all that. And so that just means Jesus is divine, right? That, that's how that was interpreted. The, the middle section, Jesus' life, what he did, actually only mattered in so much as that it led to what happened to him at the end. And it's, all, it's really evident in the hymns and songs that have been sung for generations in the church. It's all about Jesus' blood. It's all about somehow making us acceptable to God. It should be noted that that isn't actually how Christians talked about Jesus for like the first 300 years, right? It was, it was in the 300s. As Christianity began to leave the cradle of Palestine and began to spread into the Greco-Roman world, I mean, this began to happen in the 100s, but it was uh, cemented in the 300s with Constantine, but it began to leave Palestine and move into the Greco-Roman world. Christianity began butting up against all sorts of other Platonic philosophies, you know, Roman imperial practices, religion, all of that stuff. But for the first bit, the, the church in its newest, most nascent form, didn't understand that there, there was a shift, a transformation in what became the Christian faith as it began to spread. The first Christians had a different understanding. The earliest layer of the Christian tradition embraced the life of Jesus and saw in his life a call to love, heal, feed, serve, and embrace the world, not reject it. And this is the sense when what I've been using a phrase lately, um, and that is I want to be radically Christian. And, and this is the sense that I want to be radically Christian. You know, radical is one of those words that used as a descriptor of somebody who's like out in left field. Um, you know, if you've been getting bombarded with commercials online, being warned about the radical left, for example, um, radical is a word we use to say they're disconnected from anything. But actually, the word radical, um, etymologically, comes from meaning, it means forming the root. And, and so being radical actually isn't being out in left field. Being radical, real radical, is going back to the roots of something and being informed by where it came from. To be radical means, for me, in this case, that I want to discover, as best we can, 
the values that Jesus and the first Christian communities embraced, because I think they're dramatically different than what became the dominant understanding as Christianity was co-opted by empire and has been for the centuries and millennia since. The earliest Christians were boundary breakers, creating communities where there were no power relationships. Right? The, all the ways that culture had divided up the world by wealth, status, privilege, and power were obliterated in the Christian community. It's interesting that in the beginning, the church was trying to pull culture forward by giving women a space at the table, by recognizing that, that in this community, in this Christian community, the rich and the poor are not on different levels of meaning or belonging. That all the ways we have tended to carve up the world and create power dynamics through that, in the Christian community, those are brought to nil. It was the church trying to pull the culture farther ahead, and now so often it's the culture that's trying to pull the church out of the dark ages. We're going to talk more about that next week. So, so all that to say, I'm, I'm deeply inspired and compelled by the entirety of Jesus's humanity and story. Yes, I'm inspired by the death of Jesus, and we can talk about that too. I'm inspired by the resurrection and what that might mean. But I'm inspired by the life of Jesus. I'm inspired by the one who called for enemy love and then implemented and practiced enemy love on the cross. I'm inspired by the Jesus who created a subversive community that really sought to transform the relationships and how the world works. I think another, so story, I think the Christian tradition for me is about story. It gives me story. Um, another thing the Christian tradition does, and I want to talk about two more, uh, it gives us um, language and it gives us symbols. And I, I don't know that we actually think about those very much in, in tradition, in, in context of religious tradition, but I think they really, really matter. So first, let's talk about language. Um, you may not know this. I've had four years of German, two in high school and two in college. To, to be honest, I don't remember very much. I can ask how much a book costs, which will come in handy if I'm ever in a German bookstore. Um, I, I can forcefully and enthusiastically declare that it's windy outside. Um, <laughs> I can curse really well in German. I remember all of the profanity, which incidentally is not a thing we ever covered in class. I've also had uh, you know, several years of biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew. And all I can say about that is I'm really, really grateful for Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. <laughs> I, I really like learning other languages. I, I like becoming conversant enough to at least in, engage with somebody yeah, there's nothing like my, my mother tongue, right? There's nothing like, it's, it's what comes to me most naturally. It's what I think in, it's what I dream in, it's what I pray in, it's what I scream in. That mother tongue that has been, I've been learning that since I came into the world and I picked it up as I listened to my parents and I picked it up from friends and I picked, I mean, th th that was formed in me. And I, that's how I think about the Christian tradition for me. It is, it's my mother tongue. It's, I, I began speaking it as a child. Learning, learning it, listening to conversations where people were using it around me. And of course, the Christian vocabulary isn't the only vocabulary. Other religions and traditions have a different mother tongue, and that is good and beautiful. And one of my favorite things that I've learned in life is the way to be conversant with other religious traditions, to begin to speak enough of that language to be able to learn and interact and grow. And I'm grateful for all the ways that has enriched my life and my experience of my own faith even. I mean, there, most often when I'm engaging other people from other traditions, it, it actually helps me appreciate my own faith, uh, not in a combative way, but in a, a, a gratitude way. Yeah, it, it's, always, it's always good to come back to that mother tongue for me. 
Some words in this language of the Christian tradition, uh, as we've moved to more progressive lens, some of these words have fallen into disuse and haven't made the journey with us. That happens all the time, right, in actual language. I mean, if you study language, if you study the English language over the course of its development, what you'll find is there are words that aren't used anymore. And, if, and actually, there are words that are used differently. Uh, radical used to mean to the root, and now it means that you're out left field, right? So that, that's true. Happens in all languages. And some of the vocab, much, most, most of the vocabulary, we've had to reframe and redefine in ways. Words like salvation, for example. When we read the word salvation, when we hear that word, I bet the first thing that comes to our mind is, is sort of getting forgiveness from God. But that's actually not what the Bible says salvation ultimately or exclusively means. If you are being oppressed by an oppressor as the Israelite slaves were in Egypt, what do you need? What would salvation look like? Would salvation look like, um, if you were to get saved, would that look like somehow getting forgiveness for something? You're, you're being oppressed and marginalized. In, in the case of the Exodus, salvation meant liberation. I think salvation almost always has a, a, a touch of liberation to it. If you are, as somebody maybe in, in the New Testament, the stories of Jesus, there was somebody who needed healing. And if they needed healing, what did they need? Did they ultimately need forgiveness? No, oh, they needed healing. Salvation, yes, it can mean forgiveness, but it also means liberation and it also means healing. And is it possible that for, for me as I've moved, I don't want to lose the word salvation. I want to reimagine it and reframe it and I want to reclaim it. And I want to be very clear about what it means for me now. So that when I'm interacting with somebody else who's saying, well, you know, there is no salvation outside of blah, blah, blah. I can say, well, for me, salvation means this. What, is, what does it mean for you? Another word is repentance. And my God, if we need a word, we need the word repentance right here, right now, in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. Repentance actually, and we've talked about this before at Grace Point, but, but um, repentance does not mean primarily feeling guilty or ashamed about something. It just doesn't. The word repent really means to change, to change your mind. To, it's this image of you're walking in one direction and you turn around and you go in another direction. The Common English Bible, I love it, usually translates repent as change your hearts and lives. Change your hearts and lives. Change your mind. Think differently and walk differently as a result. So many of us grew up being told to repent, and it was about shame. What if we begin to see repentance and begin to be really clear about what we mean with the word? And what if we begin to see repentance not as, as condemnation and shame? What if we begin to see repentance as an invitation to become a better human and build a better world? I think that that's what the word actually means at the root. This language, of course, um, faith, the word faith, the, the word God even, and many, many, many words, we've come to understand those through the lens of progressive Christianity differently. And my gut is that that's going to continue. I bet we're going to continue to build meaning into these words. That in um, 50 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years, that whoever and however and whatever the Christian tradition looks like then, I bet we're going to be continuing to build into that meaning as we have experiences of God, the world, and one another that begin to shape and create and cultivate imagination for us. I'll say it like this. I think most things, especially in the realm of theology, should be written in pencil and not in Sharpie. Part of our work, like if you, like for me, if you want to put love in Sharpie, then we can sort out everything else in pencil. Right? I think many of us were taught everything had to be in Sharpie. Permanent marker, unchanging. 
And what we're learning is, no, it helps to have an eraser so that you can begin to change. You can, when you repent, when you change your mind and your heart and you can rethink and then you come back to these terms and you build in additional meanings, often meanings that actually were back there at the beginning. Anyway, part of our work at Grace Point as a community, in my mind, is engaging in this process of reframing these words, reimagining them, and then being able to offer people a way to keep language. Now, if that is not a thing for you, that's fine. But I just know in conversations with people, there is a, a, a longing, a grief around um, the Bible, around some of these words, some, some of these meanings that um, have just gotten so sideways and have been used so, they've been weaponized against folks. And people want to be able to hear those words again and not feel grief and pain. And so what if we as a community could be a part of this bigger work of reframing language and helping people um, be able to approach these words differently? So story, um, language, and then I want to talk about symbols because symbols are matter. Um, symbols are everywhere. They're all around us, right? Every, every business, corporation, church, whatever has a logo, has <laughs> a symbol that you begin to associate with it. What, what are our central symbols in the Christian tradition? Not, not just ours, but like the overall 2.6 billion people Christian tradition. Well, one is the cross, right? That's a pretty central um, and ancient Christian symbol. Uh, bread and wine for the Eucharist are symbolic. Water through baptism and so in some of the earliest uh, Christian uh, churches, and it's made a resurgence in the modern era, is the ichthus, which is the Greek word for fish. Um, uh, fish using a fish was a symbol in early Christianity because it was sort of uh, the empire wouldn't necessarily, across the empire would know a fish because Jesus' first followers were fishermen. It just sort of worked. And we're going to talk more about about these. But, but these are the symbols that stretch to the earliest layers of our, of our faith tradition. Most of them have become, over the years, have become to be understood and used in exclusionary ways. The cross excludes anyone who doesn't understand it properly, for example. Sacraments like Eucharist and baptism have only been offered to people who have believed the right things. And the ichthus has been affixed to the back of cars as it devours another fish that says Darwin in some sort of rejection of science and a rejection of what we've learned about humanity. But the cross specifically has become, has been used by, by groups for some of the worst actions that have ever happened in human history. Constantine, the emperor who, who converted Christianity. Constantine wasn't converted, he converted Christianity. Before a crucial battle to cement his control of the empire, he actually had this vision, he says, telling him to conquer by the symbol of the cross. And so they affixed that in the Greek letters Chi and Rho, which are essentially CHR, the beginning of Christ. They affixed that to their shields and they went in and in the name of Christ, they killed his Constantine's enemies. Crosses have been burned by the KKK to intimidate and terrorize African-Americans and others. And by the way, I, I, I researched this. The, the burning of a cross actually began, and I never knew this, in Scotland. And it was a way to, among the clans to declare war. When the KKK burns a cross, they are declaring war. And how many people have had to suffer that terror? The cross has a lot of baggage. And the reality is we cannot reclaim and radicalize. And in the sense of going back to the root, we can't become, the cross can't be radical. Um, these symbols can't be without being honest about how they've been used to, and polluted and distorted. I really want to reclaim them if possible. There's something about celebrating the Eucharist, even though we don't do it the way the early Christians did with a full meal, but generally we take a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. There's something about those flavors that transport me and make me feel connected, even to, even to people who I've loved in my life who are no longer with us and who would 
profoundly disagree with most of my theology, those that taste connects me to them in some way. So I don't want to seed them. I think what we've done in the progressive Christian world is we've seeded the Bible, we've seeded our symbols, we've seeded language, and actually what I want to do is I want to say, no, let's hang on to some of these and let's reimagine what they could mean. I think it's really strange that the early Christians actually would adopt the cross as a symbol. I mean, it's an instrument of capital punishment. It was a tool of Roman xenophobia and domination. Why did they see, what did they see in the cross that drew them to say, this, this thing, this instrument of torture that our leader was executed on is somehow now the symbol of our movement? What drew them to that? And I think it's partly something, something about Jesus and uh, whatever the Easter experience was, I don't think that they get there with the cross without the Easter experience. Something about the cross and Jesus' experience of it transformed the, the symbol for them. It went from a symbol of shame and defeat to a symbol of love and hope. What if we were to reframe and reclaim these symbols? What if the cross became a symbol not of God's anger and wrath toward us, but the cross is a symbol of self-giving, nonviolent love? What if we saw on the cross a boundary-breaking love that opens the possibility of healing and reconciliation? What if a cross could be re-embraced as a symbol of resistance to the ways in which human, I mean, empires now and then have dehumanized and demeaned and devalued human beings? Because ultimately the cross was, for the Romans, it was a device essentially to terrorize and say, if you resist us, you get this. Right? It devalued human life, it dehumanized, it demeaned. What if we begin to see in the cross something else as a symbol of resistance to all the ways that human beings, not just people in our tradition, not, but people in all traditions, people, whether they have no, the way human beings have been devalued, dehumanized, and demeaned by empire. What if we saw our sacraments, bread and wine and baptism, the, things that, aren't, that actually aren't grounded in power relationships, but they're grounded in equity. What the point of Eucharist was, was not to create a new hierarchy and dynamic. It was to say, at this table, we are all equals, and we all exist in equity around this table. And what out there in the world, we, we got some work to do, but in this space, at this table, it's already, the kingdom has already come. Heaven is on earth at this table. What if we were to see them that way? What if we began to see that Christian fish that you see on all sorts of bumpers? What if we began to see that as a reminder that the Christian tradition began, not in the halls of power, privilege, and wealth, but the Christian faith began among the poor, among a baby born to peasant tradesmen and his wife, among a baby born into a brutal world that would execute him. And the, 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 the Jesus movement began among People like fishermen, people who were living day to day to just try to get enough food to eat and pay their taxes. People who were impoverished, people who were known not to be powerful. That's where the Christian story enters the world. That's where the Jesus movement begins. So when somebody asks me, for me, what does it mean to be Christian? That's what I would say today. The Jesus story inspires and compels me this Language is my mother tongue, and I want to reclaim it so badly. And these symbols call me when I understand them through this lens. They call me to be the best human being I can become. Now, the good news is Grace Point is a diverse community of faith. We, we, we have lots of different perspectives. You may resonate with some of this. You may resonate with all of this. You may resonate with none of, none of this. My hope is that what I'm sharing today really just invites you to go and think about what, what, does the, the, what is this Christian idea, this progressive Christian church, what is that? piece, the Christian piece, 
mean or what has it meant or what would you hope it would mean for you? I want to end today with these words from Frederick Buechner. I've shared these before, but it seems really relevant to this, and I, I, just, I just love them. He says this, In the last analysis, you cannot pontificate but only point. A Christian is one who points at Christ and says, I can't prove a thing, but there's something about his eyes and his voice. There's something about the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries me. I love that. There's something about, I can't prove a thing. Maybe we should all just begin there. I can't prove a thing. One of my favorite lines in the New Testament is, when uh, I think John 9 and Jesus is, um, there's a blind man who's been given sight by Jesus and the authorities are trying to question him and trying to get him to declare that Jesus is a sinner. And the guy says, I, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I do, knew, I do know one thing. I was blind and now I see. I can't prove a thing. There's something about his eyes, his voice, something the way he carries his head, his hands, the way he carries his cross, the way he carries 